because there's a switching point where suddenly you realize that your life isn't what you want it to be. It's not going in the direction you want it to go, but you're committed to this cause that you still think is so important and so necessary and you want your life to have meaning and you want your life to have some purpose. And so maybe these personal problems don't really mean so much compared to the bigger purpose. And that's what I had to put my attention on constantly. Was the, the, and this is where my attention was focused too. This is, the, this is one of the, the retention techniques is your problems are temporary, temporal, and ultimately not important. Clearing the planet getting to Scientology into the hands of every single person, making them Scientologists, flipping the script on the downward spiral of this planet, that's what's important. And at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. And I drove myself for 17 years, actually 25 altogether, working for the church on that basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to the What the Faith podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Chris Shelton. Chris is the host of the Critical Thinker at Large YouTube channel, along with being a published author and was recently featured on Leah Remini and Mike Render's podcast, Scientology Fair Game. It was a real honor to have Chris not only on one of our last webinar discussions, but especially on this podcast episode. Today, we dive into everything from the basic beliefs of Scientology, Chris's experience in the Sea Org, and his ultimate departure from Scientology. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and we hope you enjoy learning more about Chris's story. Absolutely. Yeah, I was almost born into it. My folks got involved with Scientology back in uh, uh, 72, 73. I was born in 69, so, um, so I was very young. I mean, all my living memories are with Scientology in it as uh, growing up as a kid. And that really didn't mean a whole lot more than it would for anyone growing up in a fairly evangelical, you know, uh, kind of household. In other words, all the symbology is there for you to learn. All of the words are around. You're going to pick this stuff up before you really understand what you're talking about. You're going to be saying things that you know, don't really make a lot of sense for you to be saying, but you're going to say them anyway because that's what you learn to do. And then as you grow up, the meanings become more clear and the, and the, the context starts falling into place. So, so I grew up with Scientology the same way, you know, that most, a lot of people in America grew up with Christianity. And so I had a lot of, there's a lot of terminology there's a lot of very specialized terminology in Scientology, and um, we call that loading the language, because <laughs> in these cultic situations, language is important. And so when I was being raised with it, you get, um, well, I don't want to get too detailed about all this, the culty stuff. I don't, I, you know, we, we can, I, 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 there's so much to say, and so, so little time to say it in. But anyway, yes, that's how I grew up. I grew up around this stuff. And so I, you know, for me wondering too, because I know what it's like to grow up in that cult, cult-like, cult environment, you know, however you want to define it. Yep. Um, what, what was the, when you kind of start becoming uh, a grown up or, you know, you're in, a, you're in that, those teenage years where they're, you know, you really, I feel like you feel that pressure to make the decisions for yourself. Where were you kind of at at that point? 
Yeah, I um it was actually high school where I started practicing Scientology as an actual Scientologist. Mm. Um, prior to that, I had done Scientology. I knew Scientology principles or basic ideas of it, mostly on the lines of morality, like growing up learning, you know, be honest, don't steal, don't, you know, don't do that kind of stuff. There was a moral code there that I, that I was, um, you know, the Scientology sort of informed for me. I didn't do the Ten Commandments. I had what was called the way to happiness. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a Hubbard book of a moral code. Uh, it's secular. It's not, it's not supposed to just be for Scientologists. They pass this thing out by the, you know, ten hundreds of thousands uh, all over the world. They pass these books out. And the way to happiness is, is not particularly objectionable. There's nothing strange or odd in it. But that's the whole point. Is it, is it gives you a little bit that looks very sensible. And you go, well, this makes sense. These Scientologists aren't so bad. Now, anyway, I get ahead of myself. So I grew up with that. And um, then between sophomore and junior year of high school, my dad, we were up in Santa Barbara at this point. I grew up in California. I, I, I live in Denver now, but I was born and raised in California. And we were outside of L.A. at this point. We had gone up to Santa Barbara, California, that area. And so I went to the local Church of Scientology in Santa Barbara. And my dad said, why don't you just go check it out for yourself? Famous last words. Sure, Dad. So uh, I got in a car with a friend who was already going down and doing classes who was a work associate of my dad. My dad and, and another partner had a business company. They were all Scientologists. And it was a small little company. And so um, so I went with him. I got, I got a ride and did the personality test. I didn't go down with the idea that I was going to sign up for Scientology classes. I actually was kind of bored of it, didn't really want to get involved in it. My friends had mentioned a few things about it. And this is 1985, pre-internet. No, there's nothing. There's no one knows anything about this. There's Dianetics commercials on, on the TV. I mean, Dianetics was starting to become a thing again. I think in 85 it was. Anyway, so I did not go down there with a preconceived idea that I was going to start doing a bunch of classes. In fact, I brought books and stuff to do because I thought I was going to only spend 10 or 15 minutes down there seeing it was something I didn't want to do and then blowing off the rest of the day, right? Um, uh -uh. They got me good, man. They, they hooked me. And, uh, and they got me on being a shy, introverted 15-year-old kid who couldn't talk to girls. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know. <laughs> yeah, and so you briefly mentioned Dianetics there. And I feel like, you know, you also talked a little bit about kind of that self-help, uh, yep. very secular kind of approach uh, to a lot of kind of the, let's, let's say, entry-level Scientology resources. Um, so for listeners that, you know, don't know a lot about Scientology or maybe have never heard of Dianetics, could you kind of explain a little bit more of what Dianetics is? Absolutely, of course. Um, and actually, thank you for that because it gives me the opportunity to actually put another qualifier down that I should have said right from the get-go to be super clear about this. Scientology, the Church of Scientology, was created by L. Ron Hubbard in 1953-54, following the publication and popularity of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, in 1950. So he puts out this thing, and he calls it a science, the Modern Science of Mental Health. 
it's really hypnotism and Freudian psychotherapy sort of mangled together with some, you know, regression therapy, and here you go. That's Dianetics, okay? So it was, and, and, and I stress the hypnotism part, because that's not a small thing. There's transinduction, there's, there's post and pre-hypnotic suggestions going on in Dianetics. There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. It's a pretty multi-layered con, and, I, and that's what I wanted to say is, this stuff is a con, <laughs> okay? The Church of Scientology is a money-making scam. And if I, I, I usually don't end up remembering to say that until about an hour into the show. So, uh, so let me just say that from the get-go, right? It's not good stuff. I do not endorse it. I don't practice it. I don't want anything to do with it. And I encourage people to get as far away from it as possible. Um, I was involved with Scientology for 27 years. Uh, from the point that I started doing classes forward, not counting my childhood time. If I include that, it's 40-something years, right? So, so I kind of know this topic, and I spent a lot of years, and I was not a passive member. I was all in. So, um, so the history of this thing goes back to 1950 with Dianetics, and then Hubbard had this runaway bestseller, the country was taken by storm. It was a really big self-help fad that was very popular for a while because it was a self-help book. It was the idea of the book was not just a bunch of mantras, but it actually offered a therapy, a, a, a way that you could sit down with somebody else, you both could read the book, and then you could practice Dianetics on one another. And that was the appeal. And this is 1950. This is post-World War II. This is just as the Cold War is going, starting up. Excuse me. Uh, America is in a position of, you know, becoming like the world's first like superpower, and this, you know, there, there, there's a lot of good things going on in the United States at this point. So people are primed for, but, but there's also a lot of PTSD from the war, right? Women and men, because world wars involved women on the front lines here at the factories, making things, doing work on the field, etc. I mean, there was a lot, a lot, a lot. It was very non-genderish. There was a lot of PTSD on all ends. So this book had a lot of appeal to men and women. Now, engineering types loved it because it was a science of the mind. And, um, and that got very big. And Hubbard made a lot of money real fast. And he decided he should start lecturing and talking about this new science that he was developing. And he tried to give it to the APA the, the, uh, or, or uh, get, get endorsement from the uh, American Psychiatric Association and American Medical Association. They laughed at him. And he never forgave them. So that's, one of, that's the reason why Scientology hates psychiatry. They hate him. They hate him. <laughs> Quick side note on that. So I ended up, there's the, you know, Museum of Death on Hollywood Boulevard in LA. Yes. Didn't know it was part of the Church of Scientology. And at that point, I had done a few years of like, studying into Scientology, was kind of interested in the psychology of cults. And I walked in and I remember sitting in that video room and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is totally a Scientology thing. And I had no idea that they were against kind of that whole medical field and I don't know. So if anybody's ever in LA and they're on Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard. <laughs> I'm telling you, I actually uh, made some furniture for that building, for that facility while I was, uh, while I was working for Scientology. I, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the Psychiatry and Industry of Death exhibit, to be clear. 
um, for people because there is an actual death museum in Hollywood too, which you might get confused by. So it's psychiatry and industry of death. That's the yeah, science. I, I missed that part. I just saw death yeah. and then science. No, no, I just, <laughs> of course, of course. I just wanted to let people know. Um, okay, yeah. So, uh, so Hubbard grows this thing. Basically, it becomes international. He, he makes it into a church because he had bankrupted Dianetics. He bankrupted it twice. He bankrupted it, got a bailout, bankrupted it again. He screws people over left, right, and center. That's just what Hubbard was doing. And this is all documented, you know, I, I, we, can, we can point to articles and stuff. But bottom line is he um, then reinvents it as a religion. That's where Scientology comes from. So that's why it was a couple of years later he incorporates the Church of Scientology as an actual church, gets IRS tax exemption. Um, I think that was 1956 is when they actually officially approved it. And he grows this thing into this international organization. Now, Scientologists will tell you that there are millions and millions of Scientologists, and that is absolutely not true. There are probably about 35,000 total. And that's if we're being pretty conservative. That's like a conservatively high estimate. It's, it's probably low. But uh, it's a tiny little group, and it always has been. But it is international in scope, and they do have very, very committed members, of which I was one for many, many years. So, so that's kind of the, the broad picture of Scientology. Yeah, I'm curious, because I thought it was interesting, you know, they hooked you with, you know, being an insecure 15-year-old, which yeah. I don't know which... What guy isn't insecure at 15? Well, exactly, you know? right? <laughs> I, I thought they nailed me. I thought, oh, my God, how do they know? <laughs> I mean, I see pictures of myself in the scrapbook now. I'm like, anybody could have seen that if you just love me. Just look at yourself in the mirror, you schmuck. But I, had, I was so naive, you know. And I will say that even though I was set to not get involved particular i wasn't going there you know gung-ho to do it i was primed for it in a way that most people aren't because i grew up with it right i had had scientology applied to me i had had scientology enforced on me i had i had had talks with my parents about l ron hubbard and spirituality and scientology and how it's the only solution to all the problems of life so there was a lot of bias already installed before I went there, it's just I was this, you know, kind of aimless, intellectually not intra You know, I was very bookish. I was very nerdy. Uh, so I was I was into books and stuff, and I was kind of into how smart I was. Yeah. And I, well, I wasn't very smart, but I kind of was into how smart I was because it was the only thing I had going for me. <laughs> and then they nail me on the one thing I really, really want now. And this, and this is the key. This is why I put it this way. This is why I talk about my story this way. Is because I want people to get that while this was me, yeah. you walk in there, you've got your own things. You've got your own emotional needs. And everyone has them. And they have spent the last 50, 60 years working over the best possible way to get somebody who walks in off the street how do we convert them over to a start, to a service start where they're paying us money and buying books and actually doing this activity now? Because that's the product of the whole activity is money and you doing it. Yeah. And they've really got this down to a pretty good science. And it's really only because of all the exposure 
on the internet and on South Park and on Going Clear and these kind of things that people are wise to them. If those things didn't exist and prior to those things existing, people fell for this every single day of the week. So it might look really stupid and silly to us right now because we've got all the information we have, but I want people to remember that prior to that information being out there that you think is so easy to, uh, so obvious, everybody could see, no, Scientology grew quite a bit for many, many years until the exposure started. They, they are quite crafty at what they do. Well, I feel like so much of it, you know, and I've been in a few different Scientology centers. I mean, the one in Portland where we're located is pretty welcoming. Oh, you're in Portland? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah I've been up there. I've been up there. I was involved in getting the church into its current building. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I think yeah. that for me, just having spent, I don't know, like, probably more time with Scientologists than like the average person that's <laughs> not being a Scientologist. Um, you know, it's, it is very, they try and do their best as, you know, it's a very like welcoming environment. They give the free e-meter yep. you know, test. It's, it's very much a thing where, and I think there are still people even after, you know, Leah Remini's aftermath show. And for as much as there is, I think people still don't really know a ton about what it is because I think there's a confusion between, well, it's a church but what they teach isn't necessarily like what most people would think would be a religion. Um, well, that's right. That's exactly right. In fact, let's address that. They, um, the way it's talked about in Scientology is that um, it's a religious philosophy. Uh, specifically, it is an applied religious philosophy. So it doesn't really, even internally, present itself in the same ways that most people think about religion. You have to start drawing comparisons to Buddhism or, or Hinduism or something for people to start getting it because it's not about worship. It's not about a god. It's not about a, 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 a symbolic figure who is, you know, sacrificed for your sins or something. It's not anything like Christianity or Islam in terms of uh, religion. Um, but it does deal with, or it pretends to deal with. Okay, I'm just going to talk as though this is real stuff, but I, and now that I've got my conditioner and qualifiers out of the way. Um, so Scientology is an applied religious philosophy that basically is supposed to give you a tool set, a practical series of, of steps, guides, methods, techniques, procedures that you can use in your life to make your life better. The, the, the whole product of Scientology is improving conditions in life. That's the whole point. And so everything about Scientology is directed to helping you and helping you help others. And, uh, and it's at a spiritual plane or a spiritual level that the real help is being done. Yes, there's a practical tool set of things you can do to study, to get off drugs, to um, organize your business, uh, to set up things in your family better, to deal with children. Uh, to do investigations or find out why things are happening. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff that Hubbard developed to, as part of his organizational strategy and part of the religious philosophy that is all Scientology. Um, but the key of it, the, the fundamental of it, after you get, those are kind of like the outside surface level things they want to show you, things they want to talk to you about. But once you move in, a bit, you find that there is this graduated scale, this chart, this series of steps that you're expected to do. It's called the bridge to total freedom. 
So you can walk in and do a class and walk out and never go back again and think Scientology is awesome. You did this little class with these practical little common sense items and you organized your life a little better or you got your schedule sorted out or you worked out things with your spouse or your kids, you know, you worked out how to not, you know, hit your kid every other day and, and okay, great. So now you, you're a better person for it. And, and there's a ton of people who have had just that experience with Scientology. Great. They got nothing to say about it. But you start moving in and you start, then you join the actual group. And the actual group is a group of people who are trying to achieve personal spiritual freedom and spiritual immortality forever, right? And free themselves from this endless cycle of birth and death and birth and death and birth and death that we're all stuck in. Excuse me, this is how most Westerners think it relates to Buddhism, even though Buddhism is actually very, very different from this. Hubbard took advantage of the West's misunderstandings of what Buddhism is all about, and he just totally capitalized on it. So he even claims he's the reincarnated Buddha or a prophecy of a, of a Buddha. So Hubbard's got all kinds of claims that we could talk about all night. But, um, but the core of the religion, the core of the idea is that it's about you as a spiritual being. And because it deals with sp supernatural forces that way because it considers the spirituality of a person as the only real truth people buy it as a religion yeah you know religious scholars have bought it uh academics have bought into it sociologists have bought into it they talk about it as a new religious movement but i want to stress it's a money-making scam all that crap is just smoke and mirrors hmm. so yeah yeah but there's I mean... a lot to it there's books <laughs> and lectures i mean it's thousands of lectures yeah thousands of pages of material there's so much there that a lot of people think well nobody could fake all that mm. no they can <laughs> they can so so kind of diving deeper into your journey so yeah. you, know, you you show up you you're kind of an insecure teenage boy yeah know, they hook you you know, kind of, but let's dive deeper into, you know, once you were pretty devout into Scientology, what was sure. that experience like? Yeah, it was rough. Um, so I basically, I continued doing Scientology classes for about two years. I graduated high school and I got recruited to join staff. I was going to go to community college. I was going to go get an English degree. I was going to go be a writer. That was my sort of plan, my life goal. And they totally redirected that and uh, decided that saving the world would be a much better path that I should be on, and so I agreed. And they recruited me into that, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. Again, totally primed, okay? There was no critical thinking going on here, and in fact, if anything, that's why I'm such a proponent of critical thinking now, is because there was zero critical thinking going on at that time, either on the part of my parents or me. Uh, I just went for it, and I went deeper and deeper and deeper, and my parents were people I highly respected. Their opinions mattered to me. I took advice from them. I listened to what they had to say, and, uh, and, stay, and so when they, were growing, when they were raising me, telling me how great Scientology was, how all of our family friends were Scientologists, everybody we knew were Scientologists, so... I, you know, went, yes, this is, this is the thing. I must do this. I guess it would be kind of similar to, you know, joining the military or something because, you, you know, I was leaving home. This was going to be my first big thing. 
and I was going to work for the church for five years. There's a, there's a contract you sign of commitment. And, uh, and I was going to work at that Santa Barbara church, which I proceeded to do. And I did that for eight years, actually. So I was 25 years old when I decided I was not doing enough. I'd been struggling. I'd been working my ass off. I was doing 80-hour weeks because the church wasn't paying me. You know, 50 bucks a week was like a big, was, that was like a lot of money from the church that week. So I had to go have another job to have a place to live, to feed myself. So all I did was work. You know, weekends, Saturday and Sunday nights were the only time I really had off. And, um, and that was my life for eight years. And I, you know, I don't really, it, it made, it used to make a lot more sense to me than it does now as I look back at myself now that I've had eight years of sort of recovery from this. But at the time, you know, I really thought I need to do more. I'm not doing enough for Scientology. I'm not doing enough Scientology. I'm not doing, like, like Santa Barbara's, we're not making everybody in Santa Barbara a Scientologist. In fact, we're failing miserably at that job. Let me go work with the big guys. In other words, I, maybe an analogy might be if I was working as a, a, a bishop or something, I don't know, I don't know what the language is, at a, at a chapter of a Catholic parish or something, or, you know, or a Christian church. And I was part of a larger organization, but my job was to, was to bring the word, oops, bring the word to all of these people in my area. And I'm not getting the job done. There's too few of us. There's too many of them. I'm feeling overwhelmed all the time. We are getting nothing but um, hammered by the people up above us organizationally, right? They're on the phones with us every day. Where are the people? What's going on? Where's the money? What's happening? And I'm feeling like I'm not getting the job done the way they want. And after eight years of that, I thought, well, uh, time for me to do something different. So let me go join those guys who keep calling us all every day <laughs> and hammering us. <laughs> so I basically went to the Vatican right? And, and that's the Sea Org, <laughs> okay? Like, if you were to get promoted from the Archdiocese to the Vatican, that's joining the Sea Organization. The Sea Organization is the core group that makes Scientology what it is and runs it. It's 24-7. It's live-in. It's dorm-style living. It's quasi-military, paramilitary. Yes, sir, no, sir. Uniforms, ranks, ratings. This is how they conduct themselves. In the same way the Salvation Army has ranks. I mean, it's, it's a big fake thing, but, you know, th it, they take it very seriously in, in, internally. So I did this. And that group, you might have heard about the billion-year contract. The Sea Org is the group where you have to sign the billion-year contract. Yeah, so two things there for listeners that don't know a lot. Um, so with the Sea Org, did, do they solve the ship? There is a boat, yes. It's okay, called so the Freewind. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so but I guess... Hubbard was on the boat. Hubbard started it when he was out on the water. Yeah. In the 60s. Yes. In 1967 is when this started. Hubbard was in hiding from the law. He was on the run, on the ocean, with a group of very loyal Scientologists who wanted to be with him all the time. And nobody knew he was on the run. He was putting out lie after lie after lie about what he was doing. So none of them thought they were enabling criminality. Mm -hmm. 
there, it, you know, one of the reasons why we call this a destructive cult is it's very us versus them. It's us versus all of them. And all of them is everybody who's not a Scientologist. Yeah. And, you know, they call them wogs, which is a very derogatory British term, by the way. It's on the line of the, the N-word or something. It's a racial slur. But Hubbard adopted it as the word of choice for anybody who's not a Scientologist. They're just a bunch of wogs. And this us versus them thing is carefully cultivated in Scientology. So you're special if you're a Scientologist. You're unique. You are among the elite. You are in a knowledge base where very few people get to know what you know. Especially as you proceed up these levels that I was referring to and going up this bridge and achieving more and more status internally as a Scientologist because you're rising up these levels of so-called spiritual awareness and ability. So they really believe that at that level, and back in those days when Hubbard was first starting this in the 60s, they believed Hubbard as well could read minds, could engage in telekinesis, telepathy, uh, clairvoyance, you know, reading the future, seeing the past, all kinds of stuff. All kinds of supernatural abilities are attributed to L. Ron Hubbard, who promises that by doing these abilities, doing these levels, you'll gain these abilities. So that's why they were with him, because they wanted that, and they wanted to help Hubbard bring that to the world. That's what they thought they were doing when they started the Sea Organization. So I just want to be clear about what was really going on versus what they thought, all these people thought they were doing, being L. Ron Hubbard's most loyal followers. And that's what the Sea Org is and, and was. So that's what I joined in 1995. <laughs> Now, Hubbard was dead. He had died in 86. But the organization carried on. And a guy named David Miscavige had taken over. And he was now the, in charge of the Sea Org, which meant he was in charge of Scientology. And that's basically how that ran. I'm, cur I'm curious. Um, I mean, what was it? Did you, I'm guessing you made it to the Sea Org. Um, what, was, what was that kind of experience Years. like for you? It was, it was awful. <laughs> I was in the Sea Org for 17 years, and it was, it was just, God, did it suck. Um, okay, imagine, I can only make analogies. You see, the Sea Org is the Sea Org. There really isn't anything else quite like it. Okay, so as a 24-7 operation, you are totally committed. There isn't anything else in your life but the Sea Org. You don't have a house. You don't go home at night with your car and a picket fence and the two dogs and the wife who's not a Scientologist. That's not the Sea Org. The Sea Org is you don't have sex with somebody who's not a Sea Org member. You don't have sex until you get married to that Sea Org member. You don't have friends or external influences, quote-unquote, outside of the Sea Org. All of that is pretty cut off after a while, pretty much because you just don't have access to people anymore. You're in this world, this sort of bubble world, where your time is consumed with the expansion of Scientology worldwide. That's what the Sea Org is basically engaged in. And people have any number of jobs, from janitor and cook, to groundskeeper, to executive, to courier, to... Um, course room, classroom supervisor, to counselor, to um, salesperson, to bookstore officer, to file clerk, 
you know, everything, everything in it that, that is required to run a base of people, feed them, clothe them, birth them, all of that is accounted for by the Sea Org, and servicing the public on classes and counseling, that's the Sea Org, the Sea Org does that work too, and the management of Scientology internationally. First eight years I was in the Sea Org, I was a manager. I was an executive overseeing the entire Western United States, <laughs> and that was fun. <laughs> and, um, and all the way up to the highest levels where David Miscavige is at, where you're running Scientology planet-wide. So, um, so there's a lot of different tasks and jobs and things going on there. And, and from not on a day-to-day -day basis, it's not quite that wild, but every few months to every couple years, you can find yourself transferred to a completely different area. Sea Org members are Sea Org members first. So they're expected to do whatever job is given to them is, the, is kind of what I'm trying to get across. You don't get... Uh, unless you've got a super specialized skill, you don't generally last very, you know, for years and years at the same job. Unless you're an amazing salesperson, uh, the captain of the boat, okay, the boat that they still have, the free winds that sails around in the ABC islands down in the Mediterranean, they, they got that guy because he was a ship captain first, and then he became a Scientologist, and then they went, that's our captain, and they just worked him until they got him in the Sea Org, right? So, because um, there's not a lot of ship's captains in the in Scientology, so when they found one, they were like, yep, you're our guy, and they, and they got him. So, um, but they've trained, for example, on that boat. They have hired some other people who joined the Sea Org who, you know, had to, who had some ship knowledge. But, but most of them, they had to train from scratch. So, uh, so that's, only, that's the only place where the actual sailing still occurs. All the stuff in the Sea Org, the rest of it's all on land. It's just the naval tradition at this point. I think that, that's interesting. Um, yeah. from, my, from my background, they, there's a similar, although it has nothing to do with boats, but they have, uh, Joe's Witnesses have Bethel, you know, oh, yeah. their headquarters. Um, yep. That's I'm right. I'm curious because what, I mean, what kills me about it is, you know, so you're giving yourself, you know, your entire self to this organization to move it forward and progress it. I'm curious what in return they give you, like, you know, like a nice livable wage, you know, like um, you yeah. know, a lot of freedoms and how you live. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, the other thing about destructive cults in general, you experience this through the JWs, and I have I've interviewed former JWs. I've you know I've I've done a lot of work with that, so I understand that world too, and um and it's and it is rough like that. This you're getting the satisfaction of knowing that you are working your ass off to save the world. You are doing the actual work you believe is necessary to save the world. That's what you get. And as long as you can still maintain that belief and believe that that's important and that that matters and that your own personal factors or issues or interests can take a back seat to that, you're a good Sea Org member. And the second that your personal interests suddenly come forward and are in the front seat, not the back seat, now we've got a problem. Now you are other intentioned. 
Now you have some other intention than what the Sea Org is about. And that means, getting back to that morality code that I was talking about earlier, this is where things get twisted. Now, right, if living according to the way to happiness is the ethical, moral thing to do, and L. Ron Hubbard says it is, then keeping your commitments, keeping your promises once given, it's one of the points. You signed a billion-year contract. I don't care if you're having a bad day. Get back to work. Right? doesn't matter. In fact, I don't care about your personal problems. This is my senior, for example. Not just one. All of them. They're all like this. I was like this. Okay? It, uh, your, your personal problems don't matter. Your, your issues don't matter. Your anxiety doesn't matter. Your depression, your stress, your, any of that stuff, we don't care. That is for your auditing sessions. When you get to go in and get your counseling, that's when you get to bitch and moan and go through all that stuff and deal with all of that. And then when you come out of the session, you're supposed to be in a state where all that's gone. You're not going to have that anymore. You're not going to deal with that anxiety or depression or stress anymore because the auditing will have dealt with it. Well, turns out... Auditing doesn't actually work, but <laughs> you can maintain a belief that it is working for a very long time. And or you can be like me. I joined the Sea Org. I got no auditing. <laughs> I, got, I didn't get up that bridge. I was so busy sacrificing myself and martyring myself for the good of the planet and for everybody else that I was always sort of pushing my own personal agenda to the side. Because I was extremely committed to the cause. And I can't stress enough the power of belief. And as Lawrence Wright has so brilliantly put it uh, in his subtext for the Going Clear book and documentary, it is a prison of belief. Because there's a switching point where suddenly you realize that your life isn't what you want it to be. It's not going in the direction you want it to go but you're committed to this cause that you still think is so important and so necessary and you want your life to have meaning and you want your life to have some purpose. And so maybe these personal problems don't really mean so much compared to the bigger purpose. And that's what I had to put my attention on constantly. Was the, the, and this is where my attention was focused too. This is, the, this is one of the, the retention techniques is your problems are temporary temporal, and ultimately not important. Clearing the planet, getting to Scientology into the hands of every single person, making them Scientologists, flipping the script on the downward spiral of this planet, that's what's important. And at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. And I drove myself for 17 years actually 25 altogether, working for the church on that basis. That's how I would talk to myself. That's how I would be talked to. That's how I believed and thought. So that was what was front and center for me. And it took a long time for me to reflip that Scientology script in my own head back around to, wait a minute, I matter too. I'm important in this picture, too. I have needs and wants that have to be met. And it wasn't until I was 42 years old that I was actually really starting to think that way. And I finally got up enough gumption and personal 
intention, you know, personal oomph to realize that I was not happy, that I had not been happy for a very long time. And that while I had been covering it up with the purpose of Scientology, that Scientology was actually the source of my unhappiness, my anxiety, and my stress. And, I, and it had induced PTSD-like symptoms in me. I didn't even have those words because we hated psychiatry so much I couldn't think that way. But I knew something was wrong. I wasn't happy. And that's, that was really about the only words I had for my, my condition because I, you know, the Scientology words weren't really working anymore. And yet I didn't have anything else to draw on because psychology and psychiatry are, are hated and evil and must be destroyed. So I didn't know where I was at. I just knew something needed to change. And so uh, it was basically around the time of my, my 42nd birthday, which is December, uh, eight years ago, <laughs> nine years ago. It was in 2011 that this, was, that this whole thought process was going down. And I finally realized I needed to not do this anymore. There had been 10 years. I've thought about this a lot over the last many years. And there were, I figured out there were 10 years of runway to that moment. From the first point of actual emotional, you know, like, whoa, wait a second. Something's wrong with this picture. That was 10 years of working, working, working to finally go from that point of the first point of, wait a minute, something's wrong here, to, okay, i got to stop working for this group. This is not good. And even after I stopped working for them, I finally stopped, got out of the Sea Org at the end of 2012. It took me a year, and I still believed. I just didn't believe that the organization really knew what they were doing. I thought David Miscavige was too pressury. I thought the organization had gotten too money-oriented. I thought, you know, I'm telling so many lies every day. This is really not cool. I don't like myself. I don't like what I'm doing. I'm having to lie to people to maintain the public image that Scientology demands we put forward. Everybody's happy. It's a McDonald's image. Everybody's happy. Everybody's so happy to be delivering these hamburgers to you. Well, in, in Scientology, everybody's so happy to be delivering personal freedom and immortality to you, right? But they're not. Everybody's miserable. It's an angry, hateful, even environment. And I persevered for as long as I could. And then I went, nope. And then I finally got on the internet. <laughs> and that was the end. <laughs> but that's, that's basically how I got out. Yeah, I think the internet's helped save so many people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think, I mean, I think one of the disturbing things that, you know, and the really unfortunate thing that cults take advantage of is, you know, we just have, the, us as humans, we have such a need for um, goals and to like to do something meaningful. You right. know? And so, but that's like so hard to figure out what our thing is. And, you know, it takes years and years to figure that out. And then somebody comes in and is like, hey, well, like, what if you work towards this? And they put all that importance behind it. And then you work all that time. And then you realize, oh, wait, I wasn't doing this for me. I was doing it for the betterment of this company in the end, this uh, right. business. Um, I was kind of working for them. And you lose yourself. <laughs> that's a Dude, tell me about it. I totally get it. And that's exactly where I was at. Yeah. And, uh, and I wanted myself back. You know, I, I had some like ideas of things I wanted to do, and I wasn't going to ever pull them off in the Sea Org. 
I was thinking I wanted a family. I was thinking I wanted to get up the bridge myself. Okay, 17 years. I'm working my ass off for the Sea Org 24-7. How far do I move on those levels? Exactly nothing. In 17 years, not one iota of progress. In fact, I moved back down. Excuse me. I had been at one level. And then I joined the Sea Org. I got up to this level called Clear, the state of Clear, and uh, which is about halfway up the thing. I mean, I, I you know I put in a lot of years, did a lot of work, and then they tell me, "Oops, dopes, actually, you're not really clear. We're popping you back down to the bottom." And they did this. They totally pulled this scam in like about 2003 or four. Internationally, they just told all the Scientologists, "Yeah, it turns out you're not clear after all." And they made them redo it, and they made them pay for the privilege. It was the biggest crash cash grab I have ever heard of. But I was in it at the time, so we believed, oh, okay, yeah, they did this whole review. And turns out all these people who thought they were clear really aren't. And, oh, well, I guess we're going to have to tell you and get you to pay more money. And needless to say, there were some people who didn't take it too well. Well, but, and that, oh, sorry. Don't go ahead. Interrupt. I feel like that's a huge thing, you know, that I don't. As not being somebody's research Scientology, I don't know about is what is that process like getting to clear? And then also, I know that I've heard the extreme financial trauma that it causes to people. I'm kind of curious, like how that comes about. Yeah, basically, what you're doing is you're paying for the counseling by the hour. Actually, what you do is you buy what's called an intensive, which is 12 and a half hours of counseling. And you can buy packages of them. So you can buy five intensives, 10 intensives, and there's a sliding scale. The more you buy, the cheaper each intensive is, but the more money you're dishing out. So one intensive might be $3,600, $4,000, but you get 10 of them on a sliding scale, the price drops for each one to $3,200. Those are older prices, but you, know, get, you get the idea. Um, the counseling is then delivered to you on an hourly basis, including folder work and administrative work that also has to be done. You're also charged for that. And so you eat up these hours doing this counseling work. And the counseling is not, okay, five hours and you're going to get to this step. And then another five hours and you're going to get to this step. It's not set up that way. It could take one person 30 hours to get step number one done. It could take another person two. It's different from person to person, but it's going to take something and you're going to have to pay for it. And then you got to do the next level and then the next level and then the next level. And each level has its own set of techniques or processes, they're called, that are run on you. You are made to go into a counseling session or what's called an auditing session. I use the term counseling very, very loosely here. So the auditor, the Scientology practitioner, is going to ask you questions or give you commands, things to do. You're going to be in a room just with that counselor, and you can't leave till you're done. He's going to, leave, he's going to keep you in there until the auditor is satisfied you've achieved the end result for the process you're running. That end result could take all night. Hubbard bragged about being up all night with people uh, to get them through the process, right? Because if you start the process, you finish the process, and you don't—you're not done till you're done. So, um, so you could be in there for a really long time. 
Not always. That's a pretty rare thing, to be totally honest, in terms of it being all night or something. That's pretty crazy. Um, really only happened a handful of times while I was in. But the point is that you're being charged hourly for this work, and it's going to take as long as it takes. Auditing is not, there's no guarantees, there's no satisfaction or your money back. You know, after two hours or something, they're going to, they, they, they say it takes a lot, a lot of hours of auditing to get you up to where you need to go. And that's basically how they sell it is they estimate what they think it's going to take for you to get, let, let's say, to the state of clear. Let's say you come in and you get an introductory auditing session and, you, and it blows your mind. You come out and you're like, wow, I dealt with this. You know, most of it has to do with regressing to the past and looking for the source of trauma or stress and incidents that happened to you in the past. That's the most summary way I can describe it. There's a lot to it. But that's basically what you're doing. And some people have some profound results from going back and looking at and sorting out. I actually was, uh, <laughs> of all the people in the world who ever figured this out for me, it was Jordan Peterson who actually described what auditing is doing that actually works. And, um, and it was funny because he's a clinical psychologist. So I don't subscribe to Jordan Peterson's politics at all. But I do find some of what he says as a clinical psychologist helpful, right? And and this particular case, he was describing how you can basically, with a patient, you can go back and sort of sort out what the causative agents were in your life. Was it you? Was it other people? Who's responsible for this? Does, is responsibility scattered across people? Well, we make a lot of mistakes with that over the years because of our perception problems, because of situational factors, because of the authority figures in our life telling us it was our fault when, in fact, it was theirs. You know, things like that, right? Auditing, when it works, and uh, admittedly, that's rare, <laughs> um, kind of takes you back and allows you to review traumatic episodes in your life and sort them out. And sometimes in doing that, you go, hey, wow, that actually, I, you know, I feel better now. Good. I, you know, there's no problem with that. Hubbard attributes the cause of the healing or the, the, the benefit to him, <laughs> to Hubbard, right? He's the source. In fact, in Scientology, they call L. Ron Hubbard source with a capital S, just like they called Keith Renieri uh, Vanguard. They call L. Ron Hubbard source. He is the source of all of Dianetics and Scientology. So, there's a test you take in Scientology where if you get it wrong, if you answer this question wrong, if, if a process works on a person, who was the actual source of the recovery? L. Ron Hubbard. Not the auditor, not the person who's, count, who's being counseled, L. Ron Hubbard. Right? He's the one who's ultimately responsible for your well-being. Not you. Anyway, I digress. But anyway, that's kind of how it's sold. And all the way up the bridge, all the way up this, these levels, that's how the auditing is basically being sold to you. So you could end up investing. And anybody who's going to climb this bridge all the way to the top is going to have to invest minimum $500,000. There's no other way around that much money to get to the top. But they're going to hit you up along the way for a lot more than that. They're going to want you to buy two of those e-meters, all of Hubbard's books, all of Hubbard's lectures. That's not in that $500,000, right? Um, a bunch of donations they're going to want you to make. 
you know, if you get into ethics trouble, they have, uh, what were those indulgences, Catholic indulgences, remember those? Back in the day, you could pay for your sins. Oh, if you, yeah. They were, they were called indulgences, right? You'd literally just give the priest money and he'd forgive you. <laughs> okay, pretty much the same in Scientology, yeah. right? You, you get off sins, right, moral transgressions in the course of your counseling. It's not just about past moments of stress. It's also about all the nasty things you've been up to. <laughs> we're going to find out all of them, yeah. right? And you're going to freely confess them because this is your journey to spiritual freedom and immortality that we're giving you. So you got to cooperate, right? So they end up with a file on you and they know everything. Yeah. If you've cheated on your spouse, if you've beaten your kids, if you've robbed or committed criminal acts in the past, they're going to have all that information eventually because you're going to tell them. There's a potential they might possibly use that information against you if you try to leave. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, it's confessional, but not anonymous confession. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they call it a confessional. And they, they liken it to a Catholic confessional. And in fact, when I first got out, I was too, because I believed what L. Ron Hubbard said about confessionals. Mm -hmm. Catholics had to straighten me out on that. <laughs> and they were like, no, dude, what you guys are doing ain't nothing like Catholic confessionals. It took me years to get my head wrapped around that properly, because I was comparing them in my early videos to Catholic confessionals. Well, I also feel like, too, you know, that journey to clear, I, ha I mean, I have to imagine it creates somewhat of a superior complex for people in the organization. You know, yeah. you're, you're higher, you're further along the, the journey than someone else. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, the status is immense in Scientology because at the end of the day, that's all you really have. Yeah. You've invested a tremendous amount of money in this operation or time. See, I didn't spend that much. I only gave my life, right? So I only gave all these years of my existence and work to Scientology, thinking I was getting the better deal because when they recruit you, they say, hey, you come work for the church and we'll give you all these services for free. But that's only after you get through all the on-the-job training and the post-training and the organizational training and the other hoops that you have to jump through as a staff member, and they are legion. Then you get time for yourself and your own training and, and auditing, right? And when you're getting auditing, somebody has to audit you. And as a staff member, it's like, good luck getting that. So, uh, so it was because the auditors... Are, their priority is the paying public. Yeah. So you're the staff member, so you're the poor schlep who's only delivering it to all these people, so you're at the back of the line. Got it. Right, so that's how that works. But I, despite that, in the eight years I was a staff member, I did get up to clear. Got it, okay. So I guess, you know, going back to kind of this, this 10 year, at the end there, this 10 year journey to kind of leaving Scientology at that point, not leaving the belief of it, but as far as the Sea Org and organization was concerned, um, could you kind of talk a little bit more about your experience? I don't know if you had a family or not, uh, but I'm assuming, you know, leaving Scientology. Um, oh, yeah. No, it was rough. Um, okay. Well, I was married uh, in the Sea Org. I got married in about three months in. <laughs> uh, marriages happened pretty quick. And uh, in the Sea Org, for reasons you can imagine, with no premarital sex. And I knew Sea Org members, by the way, who had married and divorced like five times. Like, it's just a thing. 
you just kind of rotate. They have revolving door marriages there all the time. I It's not blatant. It's not like, oh, I want to fuck you. Let's go get married, and then next week we'll get divorced. It's not like that, okay? I don't mean to paint that picture. But I was... I'd had the whole rom-com, you know, growing up in the 80s rom-com sort of thing. So for me, love was love, was true love, was soulmate. So that's what I was looking for, and I thought I found it. And I did maintain that marriage with uh, my ex-wife for 17 years while I was in the Sea Org. We never, children are not allowed, though. I didn't make that clear earlier. There's no kids in the Sea Org. If you have kids, they're going to force you to have an abortion. And that's what happened to my wife and I. And if you do it again, if you get pregnant again, then, then the guy's going to have to get a vasectomy. That's the current policy now. Because they were, um, they got in a lot of PR hot water for force enforcing abortions on women and that is what they were doing there's zero question about it so um so that was kind of bad on their part but yeah no kids so i didn't have um a kid in the sea org i had a i well anyway uh, i didn't have a kid in the sea org and so i and i was barely in touch with my mom and dad and brother because i was working so hard and i was and i was never getting time off or anything i mean Excuse me. I don't know how many days off I had total in 17 years, but I can tell you in the last five years, five days off. So, not a lot of personal time in the Sea Org, right? Um, the schedule, by the way, is about 8, 8.30 in the morning until 10.30, 11 at night. That's the usual seven-day-a-week schedule. Sunday mornings was um, laundry time, so you could finally get your wash done for the week and, and sort of clean your room. If you're not married, you're living in a dorm, and if you're married, you get a room. You don't get an apartment, you get a room. So it's basically like you get a bedroom and a cabinet to put your clothes in, and that's about it. So that was the married life in the Sea Org. So not a really, not hot, passionate, deeply involved romantic marriages. Yeah, I think that'd be pretty tough. Yeah, everybody's head is in the game of the Sea Org first, and their marriage second. Yeah. Right? Unless there's an exceptional person going, you know, unless there's an exceptional thing going on there. Sometimes couples leave together, but most of the time they separate and divide, right? That's And that's how the Scientology re tries to run a retention game. Um So, 10 years, a lot happened in that 10 years. Basically, I... But the, there was a betrayal. There was a, I, there was a project I went on that was very important, and I did very well at it. I mean, really well. It was I surprised myself. Everybody was surprised, not just because I did well, but because we pulled off a target that was very, very difficult to pull off, and we did it in an incredibly short period of time. In three weeks, we basically recruited 20 people. That's a lot of people to recruit into, into Scientology. Not to join Scientologists, but to join staff, to work at a church. So 20 existing Scientologists, we convinced them to come on staff and, and work. This was down in San Diego. Uh, it was a really big deal, and I came back to L.A., and I was, like, all on fire. I was like, okay, we can do this. And remember, management and everything about Scientology is all about expanding it and making it bigger and so I was like, okay, I know what to do. I know how to do this. We just did it. I wrote it all down. Let's get this out. Let's get everybody doing this, and let's, let's really rocket this thing. And I got bitch slapped hard, hard. And it was, nope, we're not doing that at all. And no one really cared. 
And it really wasn't a very big deal after all. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. And nobody cared about this write-up I did. Nobody cared about the policies from L. Ron Hubbard that I so carefully laid out as to here's how we do what we need to get done according to what L. Ron Hubbard left for us as far as how to do it. Because he left all this policy, all these rules and for how the organizations are supposed to run. So I thought I had done this really you know, big heroic thing. And uh, not only had I not done a big heroic thing, but I actually was getting you know, insulted and, and, uh, and sort of run down for it. And that was, after, that was eight years, seven years, seven, yeah, about seven years in to the Sea Org. So 15 years working as a, staff, as a, as a Scientology staff member at this point. And uh, so what was I, around 35 years old, I guess, at this point or something? So, um, yeah, I guess it was about that. Anyway, I, um, I was very dejected. And I was so dejected that then a lot of heat and pressure came on from some other emergencies and projects. And make a long story short, I took off for three days. I just walked out the back door. And... Uh, and I took off. And then I came back because I was married and I loved my wife and I didn't want to just leave her. I was, pretty de I was pretty dejected with the Sea Org, but I, you know, came back. Really wish I hadn't because uh, life only got worse after that. I was in a lot of trouble. And uh, there were a lot of ups and downs after that. But basically, within about two years, I ended up on Scientology's prison system, the, the Sea Org's uh, Rehabilitation Project Force, or it's called the RPF. And um, it was not fun. It was like a Maoist reconditioning camp, basically. And I uh, did that for three years. Get my head straight. Get them to get my head straight. And uh, that didn't work out so great. But I was faking it till I made it. And then I sort of made it, kind of, but not really, because I was still sort of seeing things as they really were rather than how they wanted me to see them. And that never really, basically, the this, this summary story here is that it, that never really went away. Once I saw something, I couldn't unsee it. And no amount of reconditioning was going to get me to see it the way I saw it before. And it was a steady series of events that happened over that 10 years of seeing things I couldn't unsee until I finally, finally, there was a tipping point where I realized it wasn't just me. Because for a long time, you run that on yourself. It's me. I'm the one who's wrong in this picture. Everybody else is with it. Everybody else understands what's going on. Everybody else is, is with the program. They're rapturously happy. Why am I not? It's me. I'm the sore thumb. I'm the guy who's sticking out. And there's plenty of literature from L. Ron Hubbard to reinforce this point of view. I guess, um, you know, you, you said there was like kind of a series of events or things that you just couldn't forget. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know, maybe what were kind of like the top few, I don't know whether it be like the teachings of Scientology. Was it was it kind of like teachings that you started to have questions about or just kind of how the organization was operating and how you it, Yeah, it was more about the organization than it was the belief set. Yeah. Um, specifically, it was the belief set in David Miscavige and the organization that was deteriorating more so than it was my belief in the Scientology dogma as such. Yeah. Right? Um, so, like, Hubbard died in 86. 
There have been revisions and changes to his procedures, to the auditing procedure and stuff, but it's still basically Hubbard's show. It's still basically what he put there. They didn't. It's not like Miscavige could come up with new techniques or something. Not too much. He has, but not a whole lot. So it wasn't that that I was having a problem with. It was the way the organization was being run. It was the way I was being treated. It was the way others were being treated. It was the fact that I was having to lie, that other people were lying all the time. Credit card fraud was a thing. I, I didn't engage in it, but some other people did. And, um, of course, they got in a lot of trouble when they got caught. But up until then, it was money, money, money for Scientology. Who cares? Damn the consequences, right? And I watched this happen and I watched this organization that was supposed to be made up of the best and brightest on the planet doing the worst crap, right? Yelling and screaming as a, as a way of life. You, know, you, you, you guys heard about that rant Tom Cruise went on the other day on, that was leaked, right? You guys heard that? That is the mildest of reproach in the Sea Org. What, how Tom Cruise was talking is how I was talked to every single day. That's the Sea Org. Yeah. That's, and Tom Cruise got that from the Sea Org. His best friend is David Miscavige. Yeah. He talks to Scientologists like that. Yeah. Right? Tom Cruise talks to Scientologists like that. He learned it from David Miscavige. David Miscavige, by the way, learned it from L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Well, David Miscavige's dad's book is really fascinating. Yes. About just, you know, raising him. And, and for people who don't know David Miscavige, isn't he like 5'4"? Yeah, he's a little short guy. Yeah, he's a tiny guy. Uh, so is Tom Cruise, actually. Yeah. <laughs> he's this little guy. And they're the little Napoleons, man. Now, the funny thing about it is Napoleon wasn't even a short guy. But, you know, it, it, that's the legend, right? So they're all little, little Napoleons. But that's they are. They're overcompensating for their under-tallness. Yeah. So I guess, so you you get out. Yep. What What happens next? Three months later, I've, down, I've gone down the internet rabbit hole. That's the important thing. Um, I have, uh, it was a long time coming. Um, the Sea Org is not about information, the freedom of information. The Sea Org is about information control. Scientology as a whole is. All, ultimately, all destructive cults are. There's a, there's a cult model called the bite model that, that Steve Hassan puts out. And information is the eye of that bite. It's behavior information um, oh God, what's the T? And then there's emotion. Oh, thought, thought and emotion. So all of these are being controlled to one degree or another. Lifton talks about milieu control or environmental control. The reason I, I'm stressing this is because we didn't have internet access. All through the 2000s. I mean, this is not just pre-internet because the technology didn't exist. Once it did exist, we didn't have access to it. And the reason for that, of course, is because there's all this anti-Scientology stuff all over it. And they don't want you looking at that stuff. So once they finally, it took them, it took them up until 2012, the year I was leaving, before they finally put it, uh, filtered internet access on the base. And they filter out every site that mentions anything about Xenu, South Park, L. Ron Hubbard, David Miscavige's narcissists, you know, any of the critical stuff, you can't get to it. It's like Chinese internet, right? You just can't get to it. So, um, but up until then I was leaving, there was no internet access. So I didn't have 
ready access to South Park or Xenu. I, I never heard the word Xenu the whole time I was in. It wasn't until I got out that I heard about that stuff. Because it's all confidential. And if there is one thing Scientology takes very seriously, it is the confidentiality of its upper-level materials. So, um, you know, the top of this bridge to total freedom are levels that you do, and no one knows what's on them inside the world of Scientology. They, they, they can't wait to get to them. They're called the OT levels, the operating Thetan levels, because in Scientology, the word Thetan is you, a spiritual being. They, they call it a Thetan. They don't call it a ghost or a soul or a spirit, because those have all these other associations with it. So Hubbard came up with Thetan, and, and that's the word they use. And uh, I, anyway, got on the internet, and I finally watched South Park. And I finally learned all this stuff that had been being hidden from me all these years. And I mean hidden. Like, they don't, they, you really, the information control is quite good in that group. Everyone outside of Scientology knows more about it than the people who are in it. That's what's so ironic. So, um, so I thought, as a high-level, 25-year invested Sea Org member and Scientologist, I had a pretty good grip on what this topic was all about. Then I got on the internet, and I learned I didn't know a goddamn thing. I couldn't believe how much I didn't know. Questions I forgot I had over all those years were suddenly being answered on my laptop. There they were. Former people I used to know who had left the church, some I didn't even know had left. I just hadn't heard from them in years. Here they are on social media or on blogs or on websites or on, on message boards downloading their experiences about Scientology. And I was fascinated. I couldn't get enough. Um, I've always been a bookie. I've always been a, a you know, big on learning and big on education. Always. I read so much Scientology when I was in it because I wanted to know it. I wanted to understand life. And I thought L. Ron Hubbard had all the answers. That's what my parents told me. So it must be true. So, well, not so much. And I, um, and three months of internet research every day, just, you know, glued to it. Obviously, I was working and having a life now. I was having to, you know, pay for an apartment and, you know, pay for a, uh, my mom bought me a car, thank God. Oh, by the way, when I got out, my parents were already out. They had gotten out back in the 90s, but they didn't make a big deal about it. And they sure as hell didn't put it on me. Because they didn't want me disconnecting from them, right? Because if you leave Scientology, you're a bad person. And I can't really associate with you if you're a bad person. These are my, even my parents. So they were aware enough and had done enough Scientology and been involved in the culture long enough that they knew they couldn't dump that on me. So they didn't, and they kind of pretended to still go along with it, and that was how we were able to stay in touch. Until finally... After 25 fucking years, I finally have my light bulb moment. And who do I call? My mom. Hey, mom. I got doubts. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know who else I can talk to because there was no one in the church I could talk to. Talked to my mom. My parents had divorced and remarried, by the way, over all these years. Talked to my dad. Hey, dad. I, you know, I'm having some real problems right now. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what to do with the rest of my life. And my parents both gave me what I needed to hear, which are two things. Thing number one, we'll support you no matter what. That was very important. But more importantly, too, we will financially help you if you need it. 
right? If you need it, we'll help you out, whatever you need. They didn't even, like, it wasn't get out, come home, do, you know, it wasn't any of that. It was just, we'll help you if you need it. But it's your decision. You know, because if I change my mind, it could backfire, right? So they were very cautious and conservative, but very, very open to helping me. And it gave me enough, there was enough communication there that, it, that, it, that I knew I could leave the Sea Org without a job, without a place to live, without a mode of transportation, and I could actually make a go of it because they would help me out. Without that having put, been put there by them, I would not have left. Or I would have, it would have been harder, much, much harder for me to leave. So I just wanted to put that there as a little thing for your, mess, for your viewers because that you, you really don't have to do fantastic things to help somebody out of a cult. Sometimes just saying, I'm here for you and I will help you is enough. You know what I mean? Anyway, that was my experience. So three months later, you know, so I get a year and a year and three months later from that conversation, I get out, go down the rabbit hole and um, realized I had been conned. And um, that wasn't fun. That was in... Um, January, February, March, April, May. I don't know. May, April, April, May, 2013. Yeah, I mean that is that is a crazy journey to finally escape. Um, yeah, I think I think I think part of what you said I find so interesting, and it's and it's part of the sad thing, but also so good for us to know that I think even once we're out of it, at least for me, like I'll forget it. That there's so many people in one of one of these religions, any of them, um, these cults, um, that the, the whole chemo physically and mentally out where they're in it, but they're hating it. Yep. And, but again, it's like, you know, you feel like you're the only one and it's just, that's right. The amount of people that are like that. And everything in the environment is catered. It's custom made to make you feel like you're the only one and you're this sore thumb, you're the odd person out. Everybody else is on board with God. Why aren't you? What's your problem? You know? Oh, it's the worst. It's the most mentally manipulating, emotionally manipulation. It's, it's awful. Yeah. I liked what you said there too, about it doesn't take it. You know, you don't have to do a ton to help someone that's trying to get out. You know, I think, and that's also such an interesting thing, especially with just like the ever growing just kind of community of, you know, people who are leaving these cults that start YouTube channels and start podcasts and do all those things. I think that education resources are like great, but I think for, you know, there's also so many people who get out and maybe don't want to start a podcast or don't want to do a YouTube channel, but they can still have an impact by sharing their experience. Oh, yeah. I've interviewed tons of people on my channel for exactly that purpose. It's cathartic for them. It's educational to the public. Uh, it's cathartic for me to hear their story. Yeah. You know, I learn stuff about my own experience from other people. They learn stuff about their experience from me. So it's this wonderful back and forth. Cross-culture, cross-cults, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've, learned from, I've learned so much. In fact... I'll tell you a fun lesson that was really a big drop-dead moment for me. It was like, oh, my God, was the day I realized L. Ron Hubbard wasn't anything special. Mm. The day you learn your cult leader is actually no big deal is a big day. Because you re- I, what, 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 and, and it was looking at other cults. 
that taught me that. It wasn't studying Scientology or ex-Scientology. I knew Scientology. But learning about how Jim Jones and David Koresh and um, some of these others, right? Not even religious cults. I mean, Enron, watching, seeing how martial arts dojos go off the rails, you know, watching how sports can go off the rails. Certainly, it's been a learning process over the last eight years watching politics. Because I wasn't involved in that shit at all, right? Yeah. I come out, and Obama's president, everything's pretty chill. And then what happens, right, four years ago? And I'm like, what the fuck? We got a cult leader taking over the country. What is this? This is insanity, right? Oh, I was just, I was fit to be tied. But learning about that stuff. Had a light bulb moment early on. I think it was about two or three years out where I was like, oh, my God, there's a cult leader playbook. Yeah. These guys just run this playbook, whether they know it instinctively or whether they figure it out or whether they learn it from others. They, 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 there are only so many things you can do to screw with people's heads. And they figured out what the list is. And they, that's what they do. And I've been studying that stuff for the last eight years, so I know what the playbook is now too. I just I I, I use it for good, not evil, right? But that's that's uh, that's the for me that's been the catharsis is figuring out what the hell happened to me, you know, and how do I how do I help other people to not have it happen to them? Because I got to do something with my life, and I want to still help people. So it's not a purpose or a, or a, a job path that you know, pays a lot of money, but there's a whole lot of personal satisfaction in helping other people out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, and that, that brings a question to mind for me where, you know, getting out, I think I see people have such a hard time finding balance, mm-hmm. you know, because um, it, it's just, you go, it's almost like you can turn instinctive and you turn reactionary and, you know, it's reacting to try to, you know, and you're swinging like crazy, like a pendulum, you know? Right. So how, how did you, for yourself, kind of find that balance and like start to you know, find your peace? For me, it was about education mostly. I haven't had money or time for counseling. I, you know, I've gotten a little bit of therapy, but um, I didn't particularly find it. Um, I found it helpful. I don't want to poo-poo it because I did find talking to somebody who had no clue what I had been through but did know cults and did know how they work, that was helpful. Had I had to explain everything to the person along the way, that would have been difficult. So there are only so many counselors who actually understand the cult phenomena and process and what goes on in them. That is a barrier. But, um, but I sort of sidestepped it with my, you know, I, I'm not anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology anymore. But um, but I also am not like so pro that I think that's the only way you can help yourself. I have gained a lot of help, a lot of healing by, you know, reading all these books and talking to people such as yourselves, right? And going on shows and just talking about my own story, you know, ad, infini- ad nauseum, I think. But also uh, talking about how this happens like right now i finally got into the place where i'm actually doing a master's degree on coercive control 
And that's, you know, where all this education and work and writing my book and doing all this stuff, that's where it's led me to. And now I'm, I'm actually at the bleeding edge now of understanding what psychology and sociology have to teach us about this stuff and even bringing in the neuroscience at a master's level. And so it's not easy, but it's, it is cathartic. It, there is a lot of healing to be had in gaining knowledge that you didn't have before and understanding how manipulation works. Now, the danger of it, of course, is that you're going to start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> it's not just in cults. <laughs> you, know? you start becoming more aware of advertising and propaganda and, you know, the thought reform and indoctrination that occurs on social media and, you know, the, and the propaganda that we are fed 24-7. I mean, you start seeing this stuff in a whole different light. And... And yet what you overcome, at least for me, is that idea that I think that we were talking about that where you start wondering, am I the only one seeing this? Am I, am I the wrong one here? Is something off? Is something not right? I don't have that anymore because I've been through a horrible experience. I've been through the, one of the most horrible experiences you can have, which is giving up half your life to a cause that is a con. That's rough. You know, when you're in your 40s and you realize literally half your life was wasted on a con. And you were, I, I was a pawn on a board being moved around by, by people who I didn't even know existed doing things I had no clue were going on, right? Because I was living in this fantasy world of we're clearing the planet and saving everybody. It was a very effective con. But you come out of something like that, and you can look at life differently in a positive way or in a negative way, I suppose. And I'm one of the glass half full people, even after all this bullshit. And I, and I believe that um, that outlook has helped me a lot. I, I know that not everybody has the freedom to have that outlook, and I'm... I wish there was a way to train it or work on it or something because I think it's helpful to our neurotransmitters and our mental health that we have a positive outlook on things as much as we can. Um, you know, but, but you'll never forget how easy it was to fool you. And you'll never forget because you don't want to be fooled again. <laughs> So, you know, so I, this is why I adopted critical thinking as the, as the shield. It's not, a, it's not a guaranteed shield. It doesn't always work because we've all got emotions. But it helps a lot. And, uh, and, and also watching for and uh, actively resisting people's attempts to make them your guru. You know, I don't want a guru. I'm done with gurus. <laughs> Helpful at all. I hope that's helpful. I'm not sure if it is. Yeah, usually if someone says they're a guru, they're probably not actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I liked what you said there about, you know, kind of, there's kind of two paths to take afterwards where you can either look at it as like the glass is half full or half empty. And I think that that, at least from our experience talking with people and just, you know, Ashton's experience getting out of being a witness, I think that there's this hard balance to find where, you know, you get out and you're deconstructing kind of all these things that you've been programmed to think and you're kind of starting 
I feel like for a lot of people, it's just going through like every single teaching or topic that they've had and trying to just deconstruct it and then figure out what is real and what's not real. And I think that that can be often a very confusing and lonely journey, mm-hmm. um, you know, for listeners, whether they're ex-Scientologists or, you know, coming from another cult or even just have never been in a cult, you know, what would kind of be, you mentioned about just learning was really therapeutic for you when it comes to kind of just like getting to that place where you can be at peace with things, what would kind of be some of your, your tips, um, for people? Yeah, it's good. It's okay. It's There's a lot of things here. One recognizing it's going to take time. There's no fast road to this. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know. Well, it's falling out of love. You see, I mean, the same things that are going on up here when you're joining and involved in a cult are the same things that are going on up here when you're falling in love or you're in love. It's very similar. There's a lot of similar brain activity going on. And you don't jump in and out of a deeply committed relationship in a few days. We all know that, right? I mean, that's ridiculous to even think that you would be able to do that. Anybody who does, we just look at them like they're idiots because you know you can't get past a surface level understanding in a few days, weeks. I mean, shit, wasn't it 90 days? Isn't that the best advice on dating? Like date somebody for 90 days before you even contemplate taking it to the next level. Because nobody can keep up a facade for 90 days. You know, they'll fool you for at first. They'll fool you. They'll, they'll, they'll run some stuff by you. But after 90 days, they can't keep it up, right? It's kind of the same with the cults, right? It's, it's kind of worse for us second gens because we grew up in it. Did you grow up in it? <clears throat> yeah, I grew up in it. My, I was like, I was like um, fourth or fifth generation on my mom's side. Oh, yeah. And my yep. dad's side, second generation. Yeah, there you go. So, and, and at this point, Scientologists have that kind of time too. There are Scientology families, whole families. In fact, my fiance was one of them. She, I, I lost her because of that, because her whole family was in, right? This is back in 2013. I, I'm now married to a wonderful woman who was never a Scientologist, but um, anyway, so yeah. So the second gens, especially, I'm second gen, you're second gen. We're actually even our own little kettle of fish, right? Because they, they talk, you might have read or heard about this, this idea of a pre-cult personality that you can try to bring a person back to after they come out of a cult. But you and I don't have that, right? We were always in it. So really, it's just a matter of, you know, you could do it in a methodical way of, you know, writing lists or, or okay, I'm going to go through every single belief and tackle them. I did that with two of them when I first got out, homosexuality or LGBT and uh, psychiatry. I took both of those on straight away when I got out. I went, okay, do I hate psychiatry because L. Ron Hubbard told me to, or do I hate psychiatry because I really should hate psychiatry? And I read some books and I went and I watched a bunch of videos and I, and I looked at the DSM and I looked at a bunch of stuff and I realized, oh, I'm hating on psychiatry because L. Ron Hubbard told me to. Yeah, there's bad stuff here, but there's also good stuff. And when you're only getting the bad, you got a skewed picture, you know? And that's the kind of indoctrination that is worth taking the time to go back and undo with some further learning, right? That's the kind of stuff that the learning sort of undoes. At least it did for me. And that's why I recommend other people do it that way. But you don't quite have to be that methodical because time is going to help you. 
um, experience is going to help you, especially if you if you don't go into denial on this stuff. And I, I don't I'm not talking to you specifically here. I mean to anybody in the audience as well. You, you know there are people who leave these groups or get out of these groups and just put it in a closet and don't ever want to think about it again. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want to deal with it. I don't recommend that. I don't think that's the way to approach the future or the past. I think we should be open and transparent about where we've been, what we've been, and what we've done. And um, and sometimes that is hard because sometimes we got up to some pretty goofy, stupid, nasty shit when we were in a cult. Yeah. And we got we got you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I really agree with that. Where it's because it's such a heavy weight, and so we want to ignore it. Yep. But also, I, I feel like you use it, I mean, you've used it to get your master's degree, you know, and it, like that heavy weight, you like realize that it's actually this huge thing of fuel that you can use to boost you to wherever. Exactly. That's exactly right. I mentioned earlier that I had this moment of realization that I had gone, that I'd been a pawn on a chessboard. That was the exact thought, by the way. When, it, when, it, when the final nail in the coffin of Scientology's beliefs and L. Ron Hubbard is a person, after three months of internet research, final nail went in and I sat there in my room. It was like three in the morning and I was devastated by what I had, by that, by what I had finally inevitably, like, like just f with, with finality, the realization that I had been fucked over, really taken advantage of in the worst possible way, with, by the most smiling people with the most sincere f statements, the most sincere belief, and they fucked me. They fucked me hard, right? Anger, betrayal, upset, you know, these don't even begin to describe how I felt about what had been done to me. Um, took me months but I started talking, because that's what I do. You can see I don't have a problem talking. And, you know, I started. And I started, you know, anonymously at first. The church busted me. They actually figured out who, who was posting by what I was saying. I was saying too much. That was my undoing, quote, unquote. Uh, and they figured me out. Now, nothing could have stopped me from talking nor should it have, right? And I'm glad I did. I have zero regrets about getting busted by the Church of Scientology for speaking out against them because now I lead an honest life. Now I'm open and transparent. I don't have to hide. I don't have to mutter inanities to people just so they think I'm with it, you know, or I'm with the program or I'm on, the, I'm on board or whatever. I don't have to do any of that anymore. And I refuse to join any group where I do have to do that. I've taken every single thing from that, and I've tried to turn it into a life lesson for myself moving forward. I still screw up plenty of times. Plenty of times. But, I tr but I'm making an honest effort at it, and I, and I self-correct as quickly as I can. Um, critical thinking, skepticism, humanism. Humanist is the only label I actually like. I, I don't, you know, atheist, agnostic, skeptic, critical thinker, they're okay. You know, but humanist is the only one I'm actually proud of. <laughs> you know? But it, but it takes, you know, what, what I, where I was trying to go with the experience and time thing is that there are, there are onion layers to this.
and you, there's no fast way to drill to the center of the onion. There just isn't. Because you're not, you're not up to looking at the center yet. You've got to layer all that other crap off first. Then you can get to that stuff at the core level. And I've, it's taken me eight years to undo, I mean really undo, this purpose to save the planet. This idea, I'm going to personally save the world. That I'm going to personally have this like Jesus Christ-like effect on the world. right? Or through some group, I'm going to have that effect on the world even. Screw that! It's delusion. It's crazy. It's 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 delusions of grandeur. You know, it's 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 nuts. I I had to I had to figure that out though, and and work out am I am I settling for the life that's second rate because I can't save the world, or is this actually somebody else's dream that's actually a con? And that's what it really is. There is no saving the world. The world doesn't need to be saved. It's, no one in the world is asking to be saved. That's not what's going on. The world's not asking to be saved. You know, people just want some help. Yeah, and I, I feel like, too, maybe you briefly touched on it there, but I feel like one of the challenges for people who get out of Scientology and are very open about it, and I think most people know that, you know, Scientology will use pretty extreme tactics yeah. to bring people down. You know, I think I did a simple Google search on you the other day. Like, the first article up is that, well, look at Chris. He's just this awful person. Yep. You know, and, dad, and, horrible, awful guy, cheated on his wife. He's such a scumbag. Yeah. And so I, I guess for you, you know, I, I imagine you're like going through this process and you're, you know, constantly going back and forth, right? You're always going to kind of second guess yourself or somewhat doubt. How did you kind of handle that while just kind of receiving a lot of backlash from the church? That's a good question. Um, because I never really thought about it much except for the fact, oh, that's where I was going with that whole thought. Actually, this will help with this. This will help answer this question, too. Where I was, where I was uh, originally thinking with what I was telling you before about how pissed I was is because that's what drove me. It was the anger uh, at first. And I, and I didn't bury the anger, but I decided, I made a calculated F, uh, decision that I wasn't going to present the anger. I could feel it. I had it. It drove me for years because I was pissed at what had been done to me. And I was pissed at the injustice of it. I was pissed at the tragedy of it, at the, at the inability to do anything about it. Um. So that was a driver that kept me going for a long time and pushed me through a lot of the crap, including pushback from the church. Um, it took a few years for them to kind of catch up to me, but I, because I started this channel and everything was fine, and then I got on Leah's show. And literally the day after, I mean, literally the day after I was on, that's when that website went up. So that was interesting. Well, I mean, it's like you make the aftermath, and now you're now you're in the circle. You're in the the that's right. cool kid club. <laughs> exactly. Basically, that's right. You know, and I get, I now get to count Leah as a friend and stuff like that. But, um, uh, yeah, I, that's what drove me at first. So I just wanted to be clear about that because there was a lot of it, and I I was very upset. I mean, I come off as this kind of jovial, happy person because I am. But that doesn't mean I wasn't like, I was like chewing the carpet mad. I was ready to tear walls down. I was pissed. And it took me a long time to get over that. 
as it should. That's you know you shouldn't when you when you lose 24, 25 years of your life. That's not something you just go oh yeah shrug off no big deal. Yeah. You know so I get it. Um, it was it was maybe I I came for the anger and stayed for the help because that's kind of what happened is it sort of turned it morphed right it, it it morphed for me it morphed for other people and like I said I wasn't presenting in an angry way because I I saw how Carl Sagan was and I went that's a guy I wanna I don't I, Carl Sagan ain't my guru but Carl Sagan is one of the most brilliant science communicators ever. And he is a brilliant critical thinker, and he writes well. And so I read A Demon Haunted World, mm -hmm. and I went, yep, this is how I need to present. And so that's why my content on my channel is not anger fests and crying and me tearing the rug. It's, it's me saying, here it is. Here's the deal. Because yeah. I figured, what better content that will be evergreen about Scientology that will always be there for people to look up and know Oh, this is what it is. Yeah. It'll always be there for them. You know, you can, you, you know, a mother who loses her daughter, father who loses his kids, you know, kids who lose their parents. That's tragic. That's awful. It's horrible that that happens. But it's also very appeal to emotion. And it comes and goes just that quickly in people's minds. But if you can teach them something, they'll remember it. They'll hold on to it. And that stays with them. And the next time somebody's trying to sell them something, oh, wait a second. Chris Shelton said, you know, or Robert Lifton said, right? Or Steve Hassan said, or all of these ex-Scientologists said, you know, it's not about me. It's about the data. But it's, you know, it's getting it out there into people's heads. And that's what drives me now is how do I figure this problem out in such a way that I can help the world or help people in the world, I should say, to head this crap off at the past before they're taking that stupid personality test and having those, those appeals to emotion and appeals to authority laid on them and being, being sold the sun, moon, and stars when in fact they're getting mud, you know? That's that's what I want to that's what I want to do now, and that's basically the, the 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 purpose of my existence at this point. So, but I've also come to learn how to relax, you know, how to take a day off, how to chill, how to have guilt-free TV time. It took me years. I mean, you wouldn't think, but it did. It took me a long time to be able to just take some time off and not be sitting in my living room watching a TV show thinking I should be in there writing another video. I should be working on my book. I should be working on another book. I should be doing this. I should be doing... You can always do that. You can run yourself into the ground doing that. And so there's also lessons to be learned in just the day-to-day -day of our life that we can also take from this. Like, it's okay to fuck off. It's okay to chill out. It's okay to not do anything today. And it's not, you know, no one needs to, you don't really need to guilt trip yourself and nobody else needs to either. I, you know, that's, I mean, maybe that's Scientology specific because it was such an intense work-related activity for me. But I, I, I try to bring that idea to all of this, you know, for all of us, so. Yeah, man. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and I just, you know, really enlightening us about so many different aspects of science. I mean, I've learned a crazy, a crap. Right. <laughs> Great. <laughs> information this episode. <laughs> and I pardon my French. I didn't clear it with you. Oh, people. no, it's great. Okay, good. Like those ratings go up. You know? yeah. <laughs> All right, good SFW, good. All right, well, it's been wonderful talking to you guys, and I'm more than happy to do it again if you'd like. We've really skimmed the surface of some stuff, so. Yeah, and Chris, yeah. for listeners, you know, who want to follow your work and what your work, you know, doing, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, just look me up on YouTube, Chris Shelton. Uh, if you Google Chris Shelton Scientology, you will find me. It's uh, My blog is mncriticalthinking.com, mncriticalthinking.com. And um, all my videos, everything I've ever posted, it's all there. Um, I've also got a clips channel um, where I post, I post some pretty long form interviews, uh, Joe Rogan style, right? Like we've been doing here. And I will then go and pull clips from those or from my Q&A shows. And so I've got another YouTube channel where it's just little short snippets and people can get fast answers to immediate questions they might have, mostly about Scientology, but other stuff too. And so that two YouTube channels. Great. Nice. Well, thank oh, and then there's my book, Scientology A to Xenu. Uh, great, uh, great Christmas present, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is my book, Scientology A to Xenu. I uh, did this cover myself. This is me on the back. Love it. Yeah, and uh, this has been out for quite a while. There are, you know, what is Scientology? What do they believe? Is it a religion? Who was L. Ron Hubbard? Is Xenu for real? It's all, it's all in here. It's, a, it's not my story. This is an, a critical analysis of Scientology. Mm. So that's what you get with this book, not just Chris Shelton's woes in Scientology. That's that's just chapter one, just to establish with everybody that I'm for real. So anyway, you guys can check that out. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the What the Faith podcast. Music brought to you by Justin Kay. And as always, if you liked what you heard, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review for the podcast. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.